Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2022. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Ori, they, them, and Chris, any. Chris, thanks so much for coming back onto our show as a third discusser person and joining us as we get like way, way deep in over our heads here. Yeah, this was uh, a lot of stuff and was not helped by the fact that circumstances led me to not start reading it until about three days ago. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been my best couple of weeks either. <laughs> to be fair, I still think Chris got pretty dang far in it, considering that I have been reading it for over two weeks. And I don't know, I only got maybe twice as far, maybe not even that much. To clarify, this is a really, 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 really long fan fiction. Yeah, I should apologize right up front because usually, you know, on my list of fanfics to read, I have the word count. And usually I like do the checking about the word count before I assign a thing. But I think I just had it in my head that like undocumented features as a whole was ungodly long. Symphony of the Sword was very long. But how long could the first section of Symphony of the Sword possibly be? Right? Look, I mean, I'm not wrong to make that assumption well you were wrong but I was it wrong. wasn't yeah. an unfair assumption yes you were wrong but i, mean, I, I just figured uh, that you misplaced a couple of decimal places in your account <laughs> <laughs> and yes i should specify a couple <laughs> it's just been a couple weeks like i i haven't even had the chance to go back and see how many words i have read in this um we, we should probably check in about that in a moment but maybe we need to back up for a moment um our fanfic for today is some amount of Symphony of the Sword, Symphonium number one, which has a title in German that I'm not prepared to read, which is one of the many corners of a fanfiction project called Undocumented Features. And I think we're going to need to back up several places to even try to, like, orient ourselves as to what it is that we're reading and talking about tonight. Yeah, so that's a question. I spent most of the time reading this and not really looking into what Undocumented Features was, though I do understand that this comes from a much larger body of work that is based on the authors and like their friends' college experience, basically, and anime they liked initially. Yeah, I'm not sure how much actual college experience is involved there, but I guess let's, like, there's so many angles to talk about this from. For one thing, Undocumented features. Yeah, let's let's try to get a grip on it. It was a self-insertion fanfic. And, you know, growing up, like, reading fanfiction back in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, the anime fanfiction scene, I feel like there was a lot of discourse about self-insertions and, like, oh, like, they're bad and self-indulgent and, you know, like, all that kind of thing. But, like, w when did you ever read an actual self-insertion fanfic? Like, I feel like they, they barely actually existed. I mean, maybe you two read less fanfiction than me back then, but... <laughs> well, no, it, it, you know, that's fair. There was lots of, like, author avatar fics, like we talked about Phoenix sure. Audubon, written by Phoenix Audubon, but that was definitely an author avatar, and not, like... The... But then again, uh, based on my experience with Symphony, it's it's hard to argue that this is not also an author avatar. It's not, like, this is who this person is in real life. Well, at least not in terms of role. Well, when you're talking about Phoenix Audubon there, 
Like, they, they had an internet handle named after their character, but that's not the same thing as writing a fanfic in which you and your friends in the real, in a fictionalized version of the real life place where you exist, like, enter the story and maybe, uh, you know, make out with some anime chicks or, you know, save the world or, you know, get all kinds of cool stuff. Like, that's, that's self-insertion. And I feel like it's actually not super common. Um, but, but undocumented features started out as one of those. And I guess still is, you know, uh, one of the many, many things that it is by the point of Symphony of the Sword that we're reading is it's still a self-insertion fanfic. It's just really not, no longer, it seems like the main point. Well, considering we're now mostly dealing with the fictional children of those original author self-inserts. Self yeah, we've uh, strayed a bit far from the original starting point. But here's another thing that undocumented features appears to be, from my understanding, from like reading the description and all that, and this is not something that was uncommon. It was a goofy, totally non-serious, jokey fanfiction project that then became a sprawling, multi-author, decades-long project that extended in like all directions and consumed the author's like creative energies for years and years and years up unto the present day. Yeah, it's well. I just like to read, you know, just the the description of undocumented features, which is undocumented features began as a creation, half pilot project, half college life spoof, based around the first pair of anime characters I got to know well and a structure of in-jokes which are fully understandable only to people who attended WPI, which is a college, in the early 1990s. <laughs> That's the first sentence. It's like, okay. But as our audience, if they haven't tried to read this so far, we'll soon know as we talk about it. This is so much grander than that. In fact, I think, Chris, you were keeping track of how many, like, sci-fi and uh, anime and crossover stuff there is in there. Oh, yeah, it's all over the place. I mean, like, I was sort of keeping track of them as they occurred. I don't know that I have the count, but there's, like, well over 20 different properties that just show up in the parts that I've read. But I guess what I'm getting at is that that's not an unfamiliar thing, is for this, like, a, a goofy series of, like, jokey fanfics to then become something way bigger, and uh, even with multi-authors. And I remember running into a couple things kind of like that back in the day reading anime fanfiction. There was Curse of the Fanboys, there was Otaku Wars, so that was before my time and like literally on Usenet, I think. And um, I don't expect either of you to recognize those, but, they're... but in terms of something we did talk about, Tori, it reminds me a little bit of Suburban Senshi also, where like Suburban Senshi started out as just some jokey fanfics and an author avatar became involved. And now it's a community of people doing all kinds, I don't, I, you know, I never even got my head entirely around what they're doing at this point, but they're, like, continually producing these, like, you know, back and forth, influencing each other, extending the continuity, you know, works of improvisational, like, you know, chat room fanfic, among other things, um, and they're still going. And so that's just kind of what this reminded me of a little bit. Well, I, I do actually, is this still just the author and their friends like doing this or is there a community around this like there's in suburban senshi my understanding is it went the other direction whereas suburban senshi was originally just dr zadium and now it's like a bunch of people 
I think this used to be a handful of people, but by now, my impression is basically only Griffin is still writing stuff at any kind of, like, regular pace. I could be wrong there. Uh, I am absolutely no expert. But yeah, I guess that is a very, like, different, you know, uh, course of development also. Well, props to Griffin, a.k.a. Benjamin D. Hutchins, for writing this for 30 years. Oh, yeah. And, I mean... Not just writing it for 30 years, writing so many words in those 30 years. It's very impressive. And, and here's the thing. I had to choose somewhere to jump into Undocumented Features. And, you know, I, I, I poked around the internet enough to, like, get a recommendation that Symphony of the Sword was a decent place to jump in. And I think that's basically true. And I think we might have been less impressed if we had started at the beginning. But you definitely get the feeling here. It's like jumping into the middle of a, you know, long-running webcomic, by which point the author has already learned how to draw. It's like, however much Benjamin Hutchins wrote before this, by now he's pretty good at writing it. Like, I, I was more, I enjoyed reading this at least once I got my bearings more than I expected. And I thought the prose was like generally pretty solid. Yeah, like just strictly from a, like a prose standpoint, like how beautiful is this writing um, in any given moment? I loved it. I even learned some new words and it wasn't obnoxious. Like it wasn't like overly verbose. It was just like pretty elegant, you know? Yeah, I think there's a Ray Bradbury quote. I might be wrong about who that's from, um, about just like, if you want to become a good writer, you should just write a short story every day because no matter how m many bad short stories you produce from that, you will eventually produce a good short story, um, which was a little bit of a snide way of saying that you can't do something for a really extended period of time without at least, you know, unless you're uh, very not self-aware in any way, you will end up getting good at this. And the dedication you know, is not just clear just from like the, like we've been talking about the number of words or the amount of stories here. I do just want to throw this out here that when you go to the Symphony of the Sword site and, and a lot of other, I, I mean, I, I guess most of the stories in here, there's little non-highlighted, you know, sound symbols next to the fanfic links. Like, you know, like, like adjust the volume type little like speaker symbols. And you click on those tiny little GIFs or whatever they are, and there are links to audio recordings of the author reading the stories. And that's a lot of reading audiobook. Just for, like, I'm looking at Symphony Number no. 1 here, which we tried to read. The dedication involved there is pretty impressive. And I listened to some of them, and they sound good, too. Like, I didn't notice the author stumbling over a single sentence. It's just like, how much... Just just the work, once you look under the hood here, is kind of striking. Yeah, it's insane. I also listened to a fair number of the audio stuff, and not only does the author read this all, you know, every part I listen to of, of him reading, like, or them reads, I don't know the author's current pronouns, I don't know if we do. Pretty yeah. sure it's him. And I was like, yeah, it was him back in the day, for sure, because he's in the fanfic. But anyway, the author, like, doesn't stumble paces the self in fact i was thinking their voice is like very soothing oh and by the way <laughs> yeah. they're not gifts a motto because they don't move gifts don't, gifts don't have to move i i wait don't that's why you ha that's why you have to say animated gifts right 
to distinguish them from right. non-moving ones. But, but they don't include images. Therefore, what? it is no not in a graphical image format. No, we were talking about the symbol that you click oh, on. Yeah. 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 Sorry. But it's still not a... Well, maybe it is a GIF. GIF? Is it GIF or GIF? That's the real question. Oh, boy. That uh, can't be answered. The person that made the term says that it's a GIF. However, it is a graphical image format. And therefore, that it should be GIF. pronounced in yeah. GIF. Yeah. And okay, but whatever. no one actually cares. It <laughs> is fine both ways. <laughs> oh, but the real no thing I was cares. trying to say is that um, the author also puts in, like, so the characters are musicians, they have a band. They also put in sound clips when they have concerts of, like, actual songs. And, like, frequently, it's, like, they do a lot for these auto-recordings. So if you think about the amount of dedication that we've talked about before in fanfiction, this is, like, nine times anything we've talked about in terms of dedication. Maybe more than that. Like, it's insane. I have two more comments about the audio reading, by the way. One is that I settled this debate by actually, like, checking what the file format of the little speaker symbol is. And it's a PNG, which definitely shows the <laughs> author's good taste. Um, and also, I just wanted to say, I found out about these, like, the, the spoken versions, not by noticing the little sound symbols next to the fanfics, but because a while ago I was you know, just grabbing copies of old fanfiction websites in case they disappeared off the net, um, especially like anime ones. And so I fired up my old wget program, which I get to from the command line and told it to download this whole website. And usually for a fanfiction website, that takes about, you know, three minutes. And, you know, the whole thing clocks in at like two megabytes. And wget was just going and going, trying to grab this website. And I was like, what? What am I downloading? I thought this was just a fanfic website. And it's like, oh, it turns out I'm downloading hundreds of hours of, like, of audio here, unexpectedly. Yeah. And not exaggerating of the hundreds of hours. I know, it's funny, too, because uh, you kept telling me there were audio versions, and I kept going, where are they? Where are they? I think I was, you know, four parts in before I went, oh, there's little sound symbols there. <laughs> I found them. They don't look clickable or anything. Just, you know, look for them if you're interested. I do really enjoy his reading of the work, so I would recommend it. So what you're saying is that none of us knew what we were getting into in the slightest no. completely interchange format. I'm really bad at everything right now. I said I was going to not say anything stupid before this uh, recording started, and I've already broken that rule. <laughs> oh, I break that rule, like, every 20 minutes, so... Well, we can get into saying, like, way more things we're totally uninformed about once we get into the content of the fanfic. Uh, but before that, one more comment about just, like, you know, why I chose this one in particular. Also because this is the part of undocumented features that involves Utna content a lot. And that is, like, the one fandom I've ever been involved in heavily. And, you know, Tori, you and I have taken, like, five different excuses to talk about Utna fanfiction. Um, at the expense of like things that have much, much larger fandoms that we probably should be talking about. And so this was just another opportunity to do that as well. And Chris, wait, what's your background with Udna? We haven't had you on for one of these yet. Um, I mean, I am similarly heavily invested in the analysis of Udna and things related to it, but like mostly like haven't been involved with a lot of fan fiction related to Udna or other people talking about Udna because I feel like I have trouble finding people other than uh, present company accepted who have 
seen Udna and then also understood Udna. <laughs> yeah. I um I showed Chris Utna. It's one of the best experiences yeah. of my life, but also like the hardest one ever because I absolutely knew how excited you were gonna be about it. And I just had to refrain from spoiling things so bad. <laughs> but also what what I was gonna say earlier is Amato, I'd be fine if we just switched this into an entirely Utna based podcast. Like I had no yeah. issue with that. <laughs> we might run out of fan fiction eventually, but it would take a while. We could read Sovereignty Associationist Girl Nanami. That's something that I've enjoyed. That's the like parodic kind of one that has a lot of things to say about the Canadian government and uh, the definition of sovereignty association and um, Putin. So, you know, it's a good time. Interesting. Although I don't know what you're talking about, Amato. You could literally just continue reading this fan fiction for the next, what, how many weeks and have content? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the next well, year, right? You know what? That's, that's a good point. Before we talk about this story, we should probably check in about where we all were. I got into the and how do you, okay how do you pronounce these like music related words and interact and interact. I got partway through a question of faith, which is after the fourth movement. Where all were you? So I got um, into the fifth movement which is farther than it sounds because there are literally like six intermission pieces between the, um, the fourth and the fifth. Yeah. That's and pretty impressive. I'm about like, a uh, I'm, well, let me put it this way. There are eight audio parts and I just, no, there are nine audio parts and I just finished the fourth audio part. So like a little more than, a little less than halfway through that. Um, you both got a little bit farther than me. I got halfway through the fourth movement. So, okay. That's still pretty good. I feel like fourth by the fourth movement, there's a lot to talk about. In my defense, three days. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's impressive. Okay, so let's jump into it. This is Symphony of the Sword. It's part of the, the section of undocumented features called Future Imperfect, which means that there's been a, a rather large time leap, I think, from whatever stuff was happening previously in Undocumented Features series. And it has to do with a new generation, mostly, or I guess partially, actually, not even mostly, partially descended from the main characters of previous undocumented features stuff. Broadly speaking, our setting is space opera. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, it's not opera, though. No, yeah, no, it's just, it's just sci it's futuristic sci-fi. Like, I fully believe this world is our world just in the year what 24 something I forget. is where it starts and then okay. new year's happens on 24 or 5 yeah i mean i didn't mean that the the genre was space opera but the setting oh, is see. like space empires lots of humanoid aliens around that you could probably fit into like a costume on star trek if you needed to well several of which are actual alien races from star trek so yes that is yeah. true Yes, and also from other space opera, such as Space Battleship Yamato. Um, there's got to... What else was in there? What's the... What's Azalin's race from? I don't even know. From anything? Oh. Yeah, I think she's uh, unique to this, actually. No, well, no. Okay. She's a Dantrovian. Yes. Um, 
And I thought she was maybe no. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of someone else. Yes, she's she's a damn trovia. Oh yeah, I think no, that you're that right. Is a I'm sorry. Race. To it was wrong. This is one of the only races that's actually unique to oh, this, uh, this author's creation. Yeah. See, I was just assuming yeah, that they were all from somewhere at a certain point. I know, but like honestly, Azalyn is like one of the only ones that I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to keep track of everything at this, so there could be another that I wasn't clocking, but. I looked up almost every race when they like gave the name of a mm -hmm. species, and Dantrovia is the only one where like your first result is area productions. So, but like you mentioned, Chris, there's Vulcans in the background. There's you know there's a lot of stuff going on, and so um, it starts off with two preludes, and um, and I'm not sure I want to talk about Prelude One first because it kind of is separate from other things for a little while. I'd like to just like jump into the main thing here, which is, in my mind, Prelude 2. And we'll, we'll circle back around to Prelude 1. Can we indulge sounds, me here? Sounds fair. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll do whatever. <laughs> there's so much in this. Right, there's so much stuff. And we're going to have to do such a high-level you know, summary here. Prelude 2 is called The Art of Noise by Benjamin Hutchins. All of these in this series are by Benjamin Hutchins, but sometimes with other people. Uh, Benjamin Hutchins is also known by his internet handle of Griffin, in case that gets mentioned sometimes. And so Prelude 2 introduces us to some characters, mainly Caitlin Hutchins, who is the daughter of his fictional alter ego in the far distant future because he and other characters are immortal because of reasons from earlier undocumented features. And she's attending what is a boarding school high school that basically feels like a college and the prelude to has to do with her being drawn into a circle of friends that are basically the band geeks of the school and the reason why this uh boarding school sort of feels like a college is i think it is based on the initial college that they all attended it's just now converted into a high school yeah oh yeah it's called the same name yeah <laughs> I think they changed. Or the same like, abbreviation. Yeah, the initials yeah. changed uh, slightly. Preparatory Institute instead of Polytechnic, Polytechnic Institute, or whatever. Yeah. How, how do you say the name of this? W w Worst. I, I want to say like Worcestershire, but that's a totally different place. No, just Worcester. Worcester, of course. You couldn't say it like it was written, but yes, Worcester. Uh, Worcester Preparatory Institute. And so this, so the main body of the story takes place on Earth, um, and in some ways. It's a very, very recognizable Earth for being several hundred years in the future. Like, a lot of things seem to be similar. People still watch baseball, and apparently, um, the, I mean, it's got to be a, a joke that Usenet groups are still a thing. But I think it's mentioned several times that, like, people finding something on Usenet, even with, like, their advanced internet computers or whatever. I wasn't sure if that was a joke because i'm actually not sure i know this project started in the early 90s but i wasn't sure when this part was written uh i think we can check <laughs> that but it was written late enough that's got to be a joke it's, it's got the early 2000s oh yeah okay yeah okay so that's <laughs> um, got to be a joke never mind right i thought I it was written in the early 90s my bad <laughs> they, there's like a, a partial out here where like something uh like in one of the previous parts of this immensely long story um something happened involving a usenet group and a post and a post to do a news group that um caused some i believe major diplomatic incident so 
that's sort of like, I guess, their justification for their still being prevalent Usenet groups. I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate the importance of Usenet groups, just that like they are mentioned as something that anyone remembers uh, or, and or uses. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But but the main thing here is characters, because we're introduced to Caitlin, and she's going to be real central to the story. She's one of the mainest characters, though a lot of people become pretty main characters, so that's not as big a thing as it sounds like when I say it. Um, anyone want to kind of talk about her a bit? Yeah, about Kate? Yeah. Um, so she is the daughter of the author, <laughs> Uh, the author's insert character, rather. Right. Um, and, you know, we know that right off, off the bat, even if we haven't read the previous parts because her last name is Hutchins. Um, she has a stutter. It's pretty notable. It's better around people she knows closely. Um, and I'm trying to remember, you know, we don't get all the information about her, like, right at the start. Um, yeah, actually, this... No, not, not immediately, but we can talk about it, you know. This sure. uh, this first bit, this prelude, is um, actually told largely from the perspective of, or you know, a decent part of it, told from the perspective of another character, as Lynn, as she, I believe it sounds yeah. They all uh, pronounce it Lynn, which, like, I just want to give a side note. So, like, listening to it after actually having read it, almost every character name was pronounced exactly like how I would think, but I I thought it would be Azalyn, but it's Azalyn. Yeah, me too. I only anyway. know that from listening to it, too. Yeah. I have listened to very vanishingly little of it, so I might get some of these pronunciations wrong, and I'm sorry for that in advance. Um, but uh, she's our perspective character at the very beginning, and she notably finds Caitlin to be something of an enigma and considers herself to be fairly good at figuring people out. So... Uh, a lot of this is her sort of observing Caitlin and trying to come to these sorts of conclusions about her. Right. Yeah. It's pretty reserved. Um, like, and we know she had trouble with, like, she usually lives alone, you know, because they live in dorms. And they're usually partner dorms, like in college. But she usually lives alone, and she had, like, some struggle with her roommate last term, we find out eventually. So, I don't know. It's, like, hard to get a beat on her at first i guess yeah but you find out like she practices some kind of swordsmanship privately she's uh into music she's in the like the same band class with Aslin, but you know uh i i forget what what's her instrument again what does she play yeah um keyboard yeah, no, yeah. notably a, a pianist but right um, um and so some other instruments. yeah she knows how to play the guitar too but like you know she mostly is a pianist and keyboardist in the band they eventually form <laughs> spoilers jeez tori we don't have time to you know <laughs> to talk about things in such depth that we don't just jump to the conclusion here because yeah the, the yeah, chapter yes. involves azalyn sort of like engineering her and her little posse I mean, I call it her posse, but she's not, like, distinctly the leader, just, like, her friend group, right, who are band geeks, going in and, like, kind of joining in with Caitlin in a jam session as a way to break the ice, and they kind of, like, sneak up with their instruments and just, like, join in unexpectedly, oh my God. and by the end of it, they've sort of formed a band altogether. I completely forgot this happened, because so much happens with them being friends after <laughs> this. 
I forgot that Kate was like basically a loner at first and all of her mm-hmm. friends stuck up on her. Like after this, they're just, they form a band together and they're just like best friends. And you almost like, even though I've read this over the course of only two weeks, it's so much material. Like it glides yeah, by and you're never reminded of that fact that Kate used to be this loner. It's actually kind of interesting. Well, there's about to be a like couple year time skip, right? Before the, the first main chapter. Um, and, and, you know, even though this feels criminal, I feel like now is not necessarily the time to go character by character with the band either. I don't know. There's just so much to talk about. I guess maybe we should check in on him, right? Azalyn's like a extremely outgoing, multi-interested uh, person from a marsupial race. And I should just say, there's not that many non-humans at this institute. And as a result, they t- it seems like they kind of tend to hang out together to a reasonable yeah. extent. And I, I don't mean there's not there's only a handful. I just mean that like it's a relatively small proportion of the population there. It's mostly human. It's on Earth, and sure. like also there. Yeah, they make it a point that like um, what do they call it? Like a lot of there's a house where a lot of them live. Yeah, Galaxy House. That's with a G. Galaxy House. Galaxy House. Thank yeah. you. I was gonna like I kept wanting to say Gravity House, and I was like, that makes no sense. <laughs> okay, Galaxy House, where like the requirement is to either be an off-worlder or from a like a non-human rather, or a human from a colony that was founded off-world over a hundred years ago, or something like that. Right. So yeah, like there's a. It's like um, it's enough of a minority. You know what I mean. Um, yeah, so, so many of this little friend group are non-human, and we have Aslin, as mentioned. We have Amanda, who is from the space battleship Yamato enemy race, whose name I forget, and apparently she's from Gamelon. a- Gamelon. And it's like a warlike species, and she's involved in war on her spring breaks and stuff. She's like a, the yep. princess of that species, which feels, it feels like, weird from what I've read. Yeah. They don't actually, like, really talk about that much. So it's like, that's kind of a big deal, but- you know, she also needs to learn liberal arts education, I guess. Okay. Y'all didn't, like, get to the part where they really deep dive into this. And <laughs> actually, I think this is a really good time to bring this up. There's a lot of stuff that's brought up early and comes back in later. And maybe we should just stick to the parts that, like, y'all got through. Yeah, I think. I don't know what. Can, yeah. If you could resist like, maybe that. Maybe I should say too much about that. Okay. That is totally understandable, and I will try to refrain. <laughs> um, we've got Moose, who is who. I, I, it took me a while to stop thinking about the character from Archie, uh, but Moose is like from a high density, like old old colony. Like I, th- I think technically human is that right? But like I mean, like a human offshoot from a from a colony world that's extremely high gravity. Is that right? Yeah, he's a Hoffmanite, which is uh very obscure sci-fi reference, which I only know because Phil Foglio is the artist for the comic and uh, for Buckado is the the um, obscure reference. And uh, I know him from some of his other work later, like he's the artist for Girl Genius. Oh, yeah. Which is a fantastic webcomic, which everyone should read, but that's not here nor, nor there, and we don't have time for digressions. <laughs> I mean, I could digress into Phil Foglio, but um, yeah, I guess we shouldn't. And anyway, Moose is like, he's really big, he's strong because of his, you know, uh, his species and his homeworld. Um, he's very, 
like articulate and also very chill most of the time and he's uh, he kind of grew on me as a character as things went along once we got things from his perspective a bit and it was also kind of fun hearing the author read him <laughs> kind of a slightly rumbly voice so yeah the the author already has like sort of a very like not super deep but like kind of like mellow relatively deep speaking voice that is so like they speak so slowly i think i said this before but what they do moose's voice it's like absolutely perfect and i love it and i think amato you said his character is articulate but like i would sort of go beyond that it's like he's just very he chooses his words like in the best possible way it's like careful and like poised i and i kind of love like he doesn't talk a lot when he talks he's like not only like has he has the best possible vocabulary for any situation um and unfortunately he's not like super prominent um in the story or i feel like but i like how um calm and poised he is you know i found it very enjoyable whenever he was the perspective character and he is sometimes Unlike, for example, as far as I read, the last person in the band, Devlin, and to counterpoint, you know, Moose, who has, like, chooses his words very carefully, we have Devlin, who has a really, really annoying accent, and that's the most important thing about his character. Oh my god, y'all don't even know anything about <laughs> Devlin yet, I'm sorry. I don't, know. And I will say no more. Well, I didn't find his accent annoying because it was only written for me, and therefore, I mean, it was a, a little bit... Um... Oh no, it is annoying because he ever ends like every sentence with, what? <laughs> yeah, okay. um, no, I, I'm like sorry, I British people. a little bit less notable just in writing. But uh, yeah, so I got a, a couple of fun um, bits of British slang to go along with that mm -hmm. annoying tendency to end sentences a certain way. I like he's really, got, really want to spoil all the secrets about his character for y'all, but I won't. Well, he's got a very, like, exaggerated and clearly for the character, like, it's, a, uh, you know, um, affected to some extent, kind of Bertie Wooster sort of, like, um, British accent. Um, and other than that, he's, you know, also kind of pleasant and, like, cheerfully describes himself as a coward. And uh, I don't know, he's, he's okay, I guess. I'm sure, Tori, from what you've described, and, you know, there have been hints that, like, he's got more going on than that, but, like, he doesn't talk about himself. He's not allowed to be a viewpoint character, as far as I had read, because he's got some manner of secrets. He will be. Yeah. Well, and it's very clear that he has some manner of secrets, considering that he introduces himself as either Devlin Carter or Carter Devlin. Take your pick. <laughs> yeah, Devlin Carter or Carter Devlin, take your pick. I love that. Uh, and... Plus, we, like, don't know where he goes on his uh, breaks and, like, yeah. lots of stuff. But, like, his, just... his whole thing is the affectation of a fop. Like, right. and you don't know why he does this for a really long time, and then you find out, and it's, like, really, really interesting. So there we go. <laughs> well, the reasons to continue reading. Well, uh, yeah, and speaking of continuing reading and having more characters, like, we gotta get into the main content here. That was all one of the preludes and then we're in chapter one and to some extent the plot starts but i guess we can talk about it chapter one involves caitlin getting a new roommate assigned because like all other you know rooms are full and even though the you know the person in charge of housing knows that caitlin has had like a bad experience with the roommate in the past she really needs a place to put this new roommate and it's tenjo utana from the eponymous 
series revolutionary girl Utena. And so they're going to be roommates. And chapter one, broadly speaking, is about the two of them getting to know each other and then Utena getting folded into the aforementioned friend group that Kate is now extremely well established within at the point that this chapter takes place. Which, by the way, like first impressions, I was like, oh, I really want that for Utena. You know, mm-hmm. after all the duels and then even losing Anthony and getting stabbed by a thousand swords, I hope she can just have a normal life with good friends. Yeah. Yes, and it's very clear that this is, yeah, like, Utena has some uh, lingering, um, not just lingering, uh, some problems from all of the things that she's gone through, where she, like, spends most nights crying herself to sleep and uh, is having terrible nightmares, and things are not going great for her when she shows up in the series. (laughs) But here's the thing about this chapter, is that like I said, it's about Utena getting to know Kate and the friend group. And it's not about, for example, the mysteries or the details of what's been, what, what exactly has happened to Utena. Is this like a immediately post-series? How did she end up at this college? All that's going to be kind of, not, not college, it's, it's technically a high school. God, I, I can't not read these characters as college age. Look, everything about this reads like they're at college. Like literally nothing doesn't. Again, it is a college. Yeah. They've just converted it into a high school for the yeah. purposes of the story. It's like when you read those character names, like the character ages in some like JRPG, and you're like, this character is 17, they're not like 22. Or, you know, when you watch Cowboy Bebop now, and you're like, wait, uh, am I the same age as Jet? That doesn't seem right. Like, he's, right. he's in his 40s, right? Well, they do clarify he was prematurely bald, but yeah, no, I actually think he's younger than us. Well, how was we just watched Cowboy Bebop? I think he's actually younger than all of us. I think he's in his late 20s. I mean, the thing yeah. is, Utena is also a series like that, where you have to like remind yourself, okay, wait, Utena's 14. She's not, she's not 16. She's 14? Like, I, I, okay, I guess. Like, it's just, you know... This is the kind of series just like a lot of anime and video games that it's drawing from, where every teenager is about 50 times more capable and accomplished than I will ever be as an adult. And you just have to, like, roll with it. Wow, you set such low bars for yourself. I will one day be as accomplished as a JRPG protagonist, but I currently am not, so... I guess that's where we stand. Yeah, I'm still waiting for my superpowers to manifest, but don't worry, we'll get there. Uh, yeah, well, I have the other problem. My, my superpowers have manifested, but I have an equal number of super problems that are countering them. Oh, that might be my problem, too. It's just well, like constantly in a field of kryptonite or something. Uh, that's so true. I guess if you can't be some sort of, like, you know, savant at swordplay or otherwise, like, extremely capable youngster, we can at least aim for being, like, an old person who's just incredibly badass. Um, I mean, we've always got that. Well, that too, but are you claiming that you're not a savant at swordplay? I mean, (laughs) I just thought that was par for the course. (laughs) I did enough boffer sword fighting in college to confirm that no, I am not. I suppose that's one way of figuring it out. (laughs) Well, then you have no place in this fan fiction, Amato. Me, I am perfectly suited to be here. (laughs) But here's my point. I found it hard to get into Symphony of the Sword at first, and partly that's because there's a lot of new characters and stuff, but partly it's because 
the f- the focus being on the friendship. By the time we are halfway through this lengthy first main chapter, um, and the characters are in Canada watching the World Series and then admiring the really nice high-tech bathroom in the motel that they're crashing in one room in, I was just like, what am I reading? What am I reading and why? It, it took me a while to get my bearings in this story as a whole, and it felt like a bit of a slog early on here. So, like, something Chris and I have been, actually, we've talked about this quite a bit, that we have a hard time with, is there are many points in this story where it's, it's just a really long period of nothing happening. The author's specific passions, they are music and they are sports. And I will let Chris address this because, like, they've addressed this well to me. So, if you're ready. Yeah, sure. Um, I got a whole thing about the sports. But I think that the, um, just in general, before I get into that, the structure of the story is largely like um, one of those boarding school narratives. The sort of thing that things like um, Harry Potter was based on. Um, the prototype. Uh, story for that and in doing that like it's following the flow of the year as these characters go through different scenarios and some of that you know some of those scenes in those stories are there just for texture and that is very true here um and don't get me wrong like this is not a bad story structure you should have lulls and peaks in your interest curve but man are there a lot of lulls especially in this first part which is a very long piece of literature and it's like the middle 60 percent of it there are not a lot of um emotional character beats for the vast majority of that yeah, it's doing a thing, which is establishing friendship, but it's it's taking a while to do it. And in terms of me getting engaged with the story, I don't think the second movement, Christmas Rose, helped a whole lot either. Because that's when the extended family of undocumented features characters show up. At that point, like, you know, the first movement has done its job and like Utna and, and Kate have become like friends and opened up to each other more. And she invites Utna back with her for Christmas because Utna does not have any family for multiple reasons, to go home to. But that means that you meet Kate's family, and there's so many of them. And, you know, some of them are Kay from the Dirty Pair, and some of them are author avatars, and some of them are, and, you know, like, relatives sometimes means, like, really close family friends. And some of them are, like, oh my goddess characters, and some of them are I don't even know who they are. And, like, it's, it's a lot. And there's a whole lot of Kate's family being very open, very generous with their time, with their massive... Uh, wealth and power towards Utna, and it's all very nice, but it's like it it didn't it didn't give me enough to anchor onto early on in this series to like really get my story bearings. Yeah, I mean, I I just think I'd be remiss if I didn't say briefly that I still have a hard time, and I understand this is something you're supposed to get from the previous stories that we didn't read, right? But I still just have. The author is trying. They are trying to explain these relationships. It's just, it's a bit confusing. Like, um, even in the first prelude, you're introduced to Corwin and Len. Right. And the first thing that you learn is that they're brothers. But then there's another part where they go, Corwin says, oh, Len, you should call your mom. And they're half brothers. But if they, 
author had just explained that they were half brothers, it wouldn't have been as confusing as it was. And that sort of carries on this familial scene because the family is partially real. Some of them are related and some of them aren't. And a lot of them are half siblings. Um, but mostly they're like, you know, they're all from the same group or for the children, the same group of friends, but some are related and some aren't. And it becomes confusing. And furthermore, um, Kate's dad, the author's self-insertion, is married to her mother, despite the fact that she and Corwin are half-siblings and Corwin is younger. No biggie. I just really wanted an explanation for why that's the case, you know? Anyway. But, but here's the thing. I think this is in some sense why this kind of works as an opening into undocumented features, as opposed to maybe starting off with earlier Rocky things, is because Utena is new to the situation. She doesn't really get it either. And so there's a lot of Utna going like, yeah, okay. And like us, the reader, being like, yeah, okay, sure. And like just kind of moving forward. And to that extent, it sort of works. Um, but it's a lot. It's a lot early on before you kind of uh, anchor to a, a main plot. Yeah. Well, I sort of had the a relationship between um, the author self-insert and the two other anime characters is involved with. I'm just, oh, like, oh, they're just polyamorous and that's fine. And sure. uh, I have more, more of in interest to say about the fact that your author self-insert, you've married your author self-insert to what's sculled from uh, Oh My Goddess and Kay from Dirty Pair. And right. Then, then I do about the fact oh, that he's dear. in a polyamorous relationship, which is Or fine. is he? That's the other thing. Like, because they just don't make it clear, but whatever. Well, I think I think we can't try to like sort out that whole scene very well. But this is also the chapter where we learn a little bit more about what's going on with Utna. Now, she is post-series Utna. And it for a little while I was wondering cuz she shows up with short hair initially and uh also at the end of the first movement I did not mention uh a very crazy Sionji shows up with a sword trying to murder Utna and you know it gets to be fought back by by Kate. And so for a little bit, I was like, wait, is this movie Utna and or movie Sionji? Because this guy's sounding just as, you know, batshit crazy as movie Sionji is. Uh, but no, it's post-series Utna. And it seems like the whole Utna series basically happened as described, except it took place in Sephiro. Now, this is from Magic Knight's Ray Earth. And yep. so it's not <laughs> on Earth. Um, but it must be a Sephiro that is enough like Earth that it doesn't really matter. And now here's okay, two things about that. If, if Symphony of the Sword does not end with Utna in a machine at some point, I am going to be very disappointed. Um, I wasn't even thinking about that. That's amazing. Yes, that needs to happen. <laughs> and the second thing is, I was, once I started piecing this together, I was like, oh, wait. Is the author doing something with the Rose Prince and the Pillar system? Is the idea that the Rose Prince is the pillar of Sephiro and, the, and there's problems because the role of the pillar has gone unfilled? And I was like, this is that's an incredibly galaxy brain way to mash together these two things. I was blown away that like, oh man, that's, that's so brilliant. But it appears from what I've learned so far that that's not exactly it. 
because you find out that like when Utna, you know, Utna post series Utna, she appears on Earth. Clef shows up briefly to talk to Megazone, who's the original undocumented features character who deals with this kind of stuff and is like, uh, this person's very important. And uh, I don't know, but but it doesn't seem like sh it doesn't seem like it's the pillar exactly. And at one point, when we eventually see Akio, he describes himself as being assigned this job of restoring the Rose Prince by the pillar. And he's not claiming to be the pillar or like it seems like there is a pillar. And so, you know, by as far as we've read, I'm not entirely clear what's going on there. I'm a little disappointed that it's not just the same thing as the Rose Prince. That's all. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't even become clearer at the point I've read to. And I'm not even sure if it will, because I don't. Yeah, I know we briefly mentioned this, but Symphony One is the one of four symphonies, <laughs> despite its extreme length. I, I think none of the parts necessarily end on a clear note, and we're not going to always get a sense of clarity. Like, um, that's kind of hard. Because, like, I enjoy this story, especially the parts that I consider to be, like, a, like I referred to in our um, Smallville fanfic, a Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where they just get to go and have fun. That is a lot of this story. Not all of it, I think, should have been there, but whatevs. Um, but when you get back to the plot points, it's like, yeah, things uh, have not hung together yet. I believe in the author's ability to get them to hang together. It's just taking a long time. <laughs> Also, in that scene that Akio shows up and describes himself as being charged by the pillar, he spends the entire scene lying his ass off to mm -hmm. everyone, as should be expected. Oh, well, that's the other thing. So yeah, you cannot trust him at all that he is actually being charged by the pillar to do these things. Oh, of Just course. Simply that the pillar system does exist here. Right. And, and it seems like people know that there is a pillar. Like, that's all, that's all I meant. Yes. Like, um, he couldn't lie about that if people were like, wait, what's the pillar? Or wait, the pillar is missing what's or something pillar? like yeah. that. Yeah. Fair. Like, <laughs> yes, that's a, that was I, I, I do, my aside. I do that. want to praise that scene, though, because Akio as a villain, like, is kind of a tricky... I, I feel like he would be a little tricky to write. I think the author did a really good job where, like, he should be kind of creepy and in some ways scary, but not because he actually has any power over you as such. It's just that he's going to try to lie and manipulate you using various appeals to emotions, trappings of authority. And the reason that he surrounds himself with children is because those are the people he can get away with manipulating. And I feel like the author kind of hit on all those points very well. Yeah, I, I really liked the way that Akio was written. I feel like my only complaint about that scene is that almost nothing happens in it that is purely a metaphor a visual metaphor going on in the scene it's a lot uh it's it's a lot of things that are actually physically going on in the space um, well so you're saying that you would have wanted like a game of darts happening or perhaps a train running by in the background while they were talking there yeah i mean something appropriate to the situation of course but you know <laughs> It, it's just weird to see a scene where Akio just has, like, a relatively normal dinner party for Akio, uh, where he invites all of the duelists to come talk. <laughs> um, I mean, there is a neat metaphor with him pouring wine for all of them, even though they're, they're too young and um, gets turned on his head a little bit. But I do love that it's a dinner party as well, because he's, like, establishing yeah. this context, and they're all playing into it. And it is exactly what you were saying with Akio doing what he does. Now, here's, here's one thing I want to talk about also. I, 
I was going into this with a laser focus onto the Utna characters. Because like I said, I'm from the Utna fandom, not from writing fanfiction, but from translating things. Like things like the, the light novels and a lot of the Sega Saturn game. And um, I mean, an old version of the movie script, but that's less important. And so like these are characters who I have had to write the voice of. And I was definitely going in thinking like, do these characters sound right? Like, do these characters kind of seem in character? And for the most part, I thought the character voices were really good for the Utna characters. And if I was going to complain about anything, it would be that. Like, Utna, Utna herself is a really kind of... She's a pleasure to write in a lot of ways, because unlike practically every other character, she doesn't have any pretense. She's just saying whatever she's thinking. Like, um, and I thought she came across really well for the most part. I do, too. Um, and it is like something I was, you know, I was telling Chris before is it is really enjoyable. No, wait, I already said this. It's enjoyable to see her have kind of a normal life, but something that when I was talking to Chris about that, that, you know, that you mentioned to me is ugh, that she can be a little bit back and forth. Like, is this the Utna who has learned hmm. the lessons that developed in the series was the Utna from the beginning? So like, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit there chris um yeah there's both that and actually what i was going to say is that i i feel like the only thing or like some of the there's some other thing about the way that they wrote utina throughout the first largely in the first chapter like by the second movement she's sort of recovered from this but she is very frequently in that part just sort of um, played as the straight man in a lot of scenarios wherein she's like the gets the reaction of going like what this new thing that has happened and it's like not entirely in Udna's character like Udna is very quick to accept context and in this she still is but like sometimes it's very um the character who is to be expectedly surprised in this scenario while other so other so someone else can make a clever um witty remark <laughs> and that happens I guess I do want to say there was one scene that struck me the wrong way with Utna's characterization, not voice, but characterization mostly. And that was, um, there's a scene when she gets really upset at this character, Dorothy, who is a robot and who, like her, her quote master, you know, unquote Corwin wants to like to get her to go out and like live life and emancipate herself. And which is something you can legally do if you're a developed enough robot, you can like get, you know, ownership over yourself, basically. And she's like, uh, no, I don't want to do that. I want to stay here and serve you. And Una gets really upset at her and is like, oh, no, you need to gut out there and like live a little and like get, get friends. And like Imemia did that. And like she grew from it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. This is season one stuff, Utana. This is you forcing your idea of how you think this person should be living your life on her. And it turns out, no, she can make her own decisions. She's an a, adult robot person or whatever. And I do not think Kimemia made any friends other than you. You seem to think that she had some kind of, like, fondness for Mickey or whatever. I, she did not. She, like, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure the only person the entire cast Kimemia had any affection for was Nanami, and that is as a cat toy to amuse herself. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the only scene that I kind of wanted to comment on in terms of Utna characterization. Because the Utna no, the series sure. is so much about falling back into... You know, Udna, the series is so much about, like, breaking out of harmful patterns of thought and behavior. And so seeing that, I'm like, uh, Udna, you're falling back into a harmful pattern of thought and behavior. But, um, no, I, I kind of, I mean, I mostly just wanted to 
So yeah, that kind of reinforces my point. It's like, yeah, where in the storyline is Utna, which is something Chris was also talking about. And I wanted to wrap it back around to something else about her characterization, but I feel like it's a little hard to define. So I'd, I'd, like, I'd rather have you make your point first, Chris. Okay. I, I do think that that scene, um, yeah, that scene sort of straddled the line. You're right, like, that that was uh, Utna being uh, really unsure of what Anthe was actually experiencing, which is not Utna at the end of the series at all. Um, but it was a lot of things that sort of Dorothy needed to hear in some mm-hmm. ways. Like, it wasn't really specifically forcing this terrible idea on Dorothy because she was also living in a terrible context. She was living in this context where she's like, I will never go out and experience anything because I am an unfeeling robot and I do not need these things. And therefore, right. there, I can gain no benefit from them. And you're like, yeah, but that's not a good way of living your life either. So yeah, Odin is right to question that at very least. <laughs> she is right too. It's just... Yeah, it's like the way she addresses it with that anger at Dorothy is similar to how she was angry at Anthe mm-hmm. and then trying to understand Anthe later because she literally compares the situation when she finds out, you know, that Dorothy is a robot and that Corwin is her, like, quote unquote. Well, before she finds out Dorothy is a robot, she finds out that around the same time, she finds out that Corwin owns her and gets really mad at Corwin. He's like, How could you own a sentient being? He explains that, like, He's, you know, tried to sponsor her with a Turing certification multiple times. It's just like literally this legal trap. He doesn't want to own her. He doesn't feel like he owns her. It's just a legal thing. But Utna is so pissed off because of the similarities of the Rose. Like she, yeah, she gets pissed off at first. But as soon as he explains the situation, yeah, she's totally. fine. She's just like her immediate reaction is is anger for understandable yes. reasons. But that, that's my main point, though, is that she, like, it's clear that she's comparing it to her, the situation with Anthe. It's just, why would she react, like I think Amato was saying, why would she react with anger towards Dorothy, considering what she knows about Anthe, and that she's already compared the similarities of her situation? You know what I mean? Because, like, yeah. she decided not to react with anger towards Anthe, considering the they're different circumstances but she made the comparison you know anyway (laughs) it's complicated (laughs) yeah a lot of things are complicated and i i want to proceed with a very high level overview here i mean i'm well around around this point in the story i guess is when we get some kate background and this kind of abusive boyfriend um abusive slash you know rapist boyfriend that like she kind of has in her background like comes comes to a head and like she's been keeping this inside and is by circumstances kind of shares it with Utna and then with the rest of her family and that's kind of like a a really important thing for one of our major characters here at this point in the story this is where i decided that i liked this story and mm-hmm. it's odd to say um because what happens is you know Utna's at home with kate she goes Christmas shopping at the mall, which is apparently still a thing that exists. <laughs> Malls, whatever. With uh, you know, with Kate and Cor, when Kate sees her old abuser, who she thought would never come back to her hometown, it like really truly left, and just has to leave, locks herself in her room, won't talk to anyone, and eventually 
Utna, I think, is the first person she tells about how she was sexually assaulted. Um, and it's like I, I'm not going to go into detail. Uh, yeah, but it was really well written. It was really poignant, and it made me feel like like there were the parallels, obviously, of Utna's own situation right. with Akio that came to the forefront. It just like, it's like, I don't want to go into detail, so it's hard to describe, but I just, I will say that as someone with similar experiences, it had an emotional resonance and I really appreciated what the author was doing. And also that the follow-up was like, you know, being like, I will destroy this man. And like, at first you're like, okay, like, I'm not sure if that's right, but that he definitely ends up being an infinitely destroyable person. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I do want to say, yeah, I like that that, be, that the, the author did not forget Utna's experiences and she was able to not just sympathize, but empathize like with Kate. And mm -hmm. that's like a really important bonding thing there. But as for what you were just saying, Tori, the only thing that kind of made me roll my eyes was that Utna being like, I, I will literally murder this person for you. And Kate having to be like, no, please don't. That is not going to help. That's a good character moment. But then it's repeated twice more because both Corwin and her mom, Kay, are also like, I am going to like right. literally dismantle this person and people have to hold them back. And I was like, that was a good character beat. We just had it for three different characters. I agree. It gets repeated too much with the, the next two characters, but I do actually appreciate that. We got, uh, Utna explaining that then explaining that to someone else. Um, that's very, also a very understandable reaction. Um, oh yeah. No, no, it's, to also. it's totally understandable. It's yeah. just like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It didn't, didn't need to be, Look, so prominently in certain ways you're you're right it's totally understandable but it's also like and it's a bit naive like i forgive it for someone like corwin who's like literally 13 right, like, right? That, that was but, like, the first of mother, those reactions was very yeah like that was Udna needing to explain that and to corwin yes that makes sense he's young he's a demigod of the norse pantheon ergo <laughs> Yeah, but it's like actually like Kate's mother who has the worst reaction and like literally physically needs to be stopped by Utna. And I was like, dude, like, don't you have the emotional maturity to like understand that how to handle this? Anyway, it was interesting. I mean, she I gets mean, it and it's like actually a good bonding thing, but it's still odd. And in her defense, she is a member of the dirty pair. And so probably her go to reaction is probably that explosives can solve a problem. Look, they're largely not responsible for the fact that most of their <laughs> jobs had both exploded. <laughs> that is true. They're always cleared by the computer. Yeah, exactly. That's good wraparound, though, to the fact that, like, every single adult, quote-unquote, in this, all the parents, are either immortals or gods. So they are infinitely young, <laughs> and not just, like, looking like they're 30. They look like they're 20. <laughs> like, you know, everybody's like, your parent looks like they're four years older than you are, which is an interesting choice. I mean, I'm not saying it was the choice of the immortals to look such way, but it's an interesting author choice. But we're going to have to move on in the plot because over the course of what I've read, what emerges as kind of a ongoing thing, there's like a million subplots, but what emerges as an ongoing plot to hang things on is that Udna keeps accidentally summoning student council members from Sephiro, 
into Earth. And it no one's entirely sure why, but it's like when she's been thinking about them, Sayonji when she's delirious, and both Miki and Juri, as far as I've read, like when she was thinking, man, it sure would be nice to have that person around right now. And her theory or is, is kind of like that she has the power of Dios in some way after all, and that's what's like activating this. Um, but as these people show up, they get to be, in Sayonji's case, kind of rehabilitated or otherwise sort of like, you know, folded into the lifestyle there. Because what else, what else are they going to do with them besides kind of have them like keep them all together and try to set them up with lives here? And... And along the way, they also end up starting up a dueling club at the school that uses the same rules as the Otori dueling. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to say about the summoning is I believe we already have... I mean, first of all, we should clarify, there's this character called Megazone, who is also one of the author's friends, friends. possibly an author of this. Yes. He was an author of at least... He was at least co-writing or partially co-writing that chapter two we were talking about. Oh, correct. Yeah, I forget because he's yeah, definitely credited there. Um, first of all, no idea where that name came from. Maybe we can, there's nothing more to say about that. Oh, no. He's an interesting choice. Of yeah, what'd you say, superhero Chris? Superhero names. Yeah, it was like an oh, 80s yeah. cartoon super Oh, uh, yeah. I said it was, um, this is, this is mildly mean, uh, in his defense. It's all right. I said it was like a, a mediocre supervillain name and a not very good superhero name. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, though, because he's a sweet character. He is the Avatar of Chaos. And apparently, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to try not to spoil anything because I forget what we have already. But I do know that we know that he was the first person that Utna saw and, like, right. you know, knew she was brought over from Sephiro and, um, sort of set her up there and that's why she's surprised to see him making pancakes in kate's house but oh gosh i'm digressing just like this fan fiction does uh, <laughs> oh, not just like this fan fiction does you yet to have a four thousand word aside about the world series that has nothing to do with anything <laughs> yeah or like in every other four thousand word other 4,000 word digression about a concert or a trip to a new city where they just go to restaurants and nothing else happens. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, at the risk of being back on topic. At the risk of, you know, forcing me to digress. No. Um, <laughs> no, this, this, the only thing I wanted to bring up with, with that is that he has a theory that the reason that people are coming across is because Utna is thinking about them. So, like, that's why Utna sort of develops her hypothesis as well. And I think I was going to say something else, but, you know, digressions are distracting, so whatever. In fact, I will say, every time I digress on something, I get distracted. And the fact this author can digress for, like, half a novel and still come back to their main point may be impressive. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, we were about to get into um, um, Animato's description that they form a, a basically rose duel school club which is just you were talking earlier about falling back into bad context and the fact that Utna, by the end of the series should not be doing that anymore and oh my god is that just this so much this <laughs> yeah i definitely thought that too i was like 
wait, no, why? Why are you setting this up? That's, like, what, what good came out of that? I mean, it's not like they're fighting for anything. It's just a way, it's because, it's basically because she wants to be able to, like, train with other people, with other sword styles, and you, you can't actually do that in any, you know, fighting rules. But even so, it, it does feel like maybe you should leave that behind in Otori where it belongs. Right. It's not like the author doesn't provide that justification. And the thing I sort of extrapolated, even though I don't think this gives it full justification, the only thing that makes sense to me is it's like reclamation. It's like, mm-hmm. this is something that was forced on me and was really traumatic, but that I also became good at and that I can turn back into something as positive for me. However, I still don't think that fully justifies it. Like, I am still a bit shocked and taken out of the world, honestly, a little bit. This is actually one of my biggest criticisms is the, the dueling club. Even though it, it looks like fun from the outside, if you start to, like, really think, connect it back to the story of Utna, you're like, how could she do this day in and day out and not be re-traumatized and not... I don't know. It just, it doesn't seem like something that Utna would really want. You could find another structure. You don't have to have a rose duel. That's all I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Learning to utilize a sword better, a grand skill. Wonderful. That's fine. The fact that it's rose duels specifically, specifically rose duels. (laughs) Why would you ever, why would Utna ever do that? Yeah. I just don't understand. And the author like even acknowledges that she wouldn't want to and yet does it anyway. Yeah. And no one else really has a problem with it either. Like, you know, the other student council members so far are just like, yeah, sure. Uh, seems like more or less fun. When she brings across, I had a moment where like, when she brings across jury, she brings across a jury because they are being harassed by a designated villain character who is just the worst. And, you know, she's like rich and hateful and the head of the fencing club. And so when Udna was like, oh, like, you know, jury would be able to like put her in your place or whatever i thought for sure you know jury comes over and because because this person is giving mickey trouble specifically like jury's all in on like smacking her down and i was like oh great like jury's gonna be able to challenge her to you know defensing and like maybe go into the club and like kind of show her up before all of her like admirers in the fencing club because jury is very very good at fencing and instead jury challenges her to a rose duel and i was like wait 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 why are we doing this? Yeah, and uh, I should point out that this character um, gets into, like, in order to form the Rose Duel Club in the first place, has a Rose Duel with Utna before that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, the author of this piece of work mentions earlier on the difference between kendo being a sport and kenjutsu being a martial art and like really goes in on that at one point earlier on and then this character is supposed to be specifically a european styled fencer right and do- they like holds her own in a duel without rules a real ro- rose duel like other than you know the rose duel rule um against utna who is quite skilled and accomplished at this. And I would like to remind you that although you learn certain very useful things in fencing, it doesn't really have a lot of contingencies for most forms of actual combat, including the um, 
point of your opponent being able to move side to side instead of just front to back. <laughs> well, that's actually that didn't bother me much for a couple of reasons. And one is because that's just the conceit of Utna is that you can be like a kendoist or a fencer or like pick up a sword and like whatever you're fighting and well, trying to knock off the opponent's throws. Right. I mean, I figured that in that it was much more that these people were trying to be rose duelists and that's why they were good at their sports rather than it was they were good at sports and therefore that translated realistically to sword fighting immediately. Uh, it's a fine line. But the, the other thing is also just like, I, you know, they were... In that fight, they made a point of Utena feeling like she was rusty, like she's not at the top of her game. She's not done anything like this since Akio, and that did not go well. And I kind of like, I, I like it emphasized with Utena's style that she's not actually a trained anything. She's a very talented multi-athlete who is like very good with her body and using it, but she's not actually a formally trained anything in terms of using a sword. So she's kind of winging it like she, you know, she's winging it in every duel. And even though she got into a groove, it's not like she learned, like, you know, broad, specific skills necessarily, I feel like. Right. I just feel like this whole thing was more, you know, Utno was able to hold her own against such skilled duelists as, as like, Jerry to some extent, especially by the end of the series. And then you're like, this person who only ever did fencing and is just <laughs> an arrogant piece of garbage of a human being is somehow a good enough fencer to hold more than, like, to hold her own at least as well as Jury would, and then I, I guess, I mean, I didn't quite get to the part where Jury actually shows up and puts her in her place, so <laughs> I, I'm just, that whole duel was a bit, um, it didn't need to be as long and have as many back and forths as it really did. Honestly, it could have been Utna putting her in her place at that point, and I feel like that would have been a fine story beat. <laughs> I don't know, I feel like there had to be, like, some sense of like peril there and some sense of competency from Liza Broadbank. But yeah, I mean like I agree with the point about like, yeah, fencing being a sport, not a real art. But like I just that that might just be that in the far flung future. Oh, is that well, I'm sorry. Was I misinterpreting that? Uh, no, no, no. It's uh yeah, it's yeah, this is not a true martial discipline. It's, it's, right. you, that's fine. Uh, you, what you said is is Oh, yeah, it's not a true martial art. Um, is more sport, yeah. But at the same time, the author maybe doesn't know that it 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 works out. It shakes out however it shakes out. the The truth is that Liza Broadbank is a competent fighter, and I think it's important that she, like, in a certain sense, right. And it's important that she is because otherwise, there's no reason to have this fight. Like, she would have been put in her place. From the jump, you wouldn't have need the the administration wouldn't have needed them to fight or whatever. Well, the administration was hung up on administration rules and yeah, yeah, had nothing enough. to do with the actual quality of the people. Yeah, but it's more fun when it's a that it's more fun we get actually do. whatever. Whatever. All right. I don't know. Oh, uh, I was just saying the last point is I feel like the author just really wants to have those sort like feels the need to have that sort of back and forth in all of the fight scenes. Like, none of the fight scenes can just be a direct uh, thing. They have to be an exchange of blows in a certain way, and the person that eventually wins has to be backfooted at a certain point. And 
I'm not quite sure I agree with all of those tropes, especially applying them to every fight scene, but, you know. <sighs> okay. Yeah, no, that that's for real. Like, I don't think this author was a martial artist or competent with the sword. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just assuming, but, like, they Wait. were more concerned with the tropes of the narratives they were drawing from, right? Do you two, I know you two have martial arts background, but do you have sword fighting background that I don't know about? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm. I have spent a long time learning how to sword fight. Kenjutsu. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, you you are a lot closer to reaching teenager anime teenager level of competency than I am. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the point at which all of these skills become useful when the you know the zombie apocalypse hits, I'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> got all the survival skills. I got all of the sword fighting skills. Like, hey, we're getting marksman. Uh, when yeah, any of this shit comes up. How's your magic? Yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, decent. <laughs> Approximate. <laughs> average. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least average. <laughs> well, speaking of teenagers, um, I do just want to say I did appreciate if you're going to have Utna characters coming through from another world one by one, it does my little Utna heart proud that they are coming through in student council order and so it's like yep okay first oh is sionji then is yes. mickey then is jury then is the corpse of ruka i mean then is nanami and then is toga <laughs> just perfect normal order i didn't even think of that well i certainly didn't think of it that way thanks Amata. <laughs> i mean technically speaking if the corpse of ruka was going to come through he would be before jury so never mind oh yeah well too bad, right? I was not for that reference. <laughs> well, I, 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 it was in my mind because I reached the point in my story, in, in the story we've been reading, where Jury's talking to Dorothy, and it comes up. She's like, "Uh, yeah, like I, I trained under the, the, uh, the previous fencing club leader, and he got sick and had to leave, and I became captain, and later he died." And Dorothy's like, "Oh, I'm sorry to hear that." And it's like Jury's. There's a line with like Jury was not sure how to respond to that, and. Possibly because she would have said, don't be sorry. But I guess maybe we're supposed to take the jury had some sort of fond feelings towards Ruka, maybe yeah. retrospectively once he was dead. Um, but he's pretty awful. Sorry. <laughs> well, and jury, also true to form, is not very forgiving in this fanfiction. Anyway, um, yeah, by the, by the point I read, I was... I was really into the developing plot and the characters and, like, the many, many subplots and plot threads that were going on. And also, I was really interested to see, like, yeah, I do want to see Nanami and, like, the author handled Nanami. And, I mean, Nanami's great in general, so I always want to see more Nanami. Um, but, like, that's clearly what I have to look forward to if I keep reading. You and I might have different perspectives about Nanami. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny that you say, like, the many, many subplots because, like, with the amount of words here, I don't think that there are that many subplots. Um, most of it is digressions about characters going on vacations or playing concerts with their bands or going to, well, there's twice where they go to sporting events, but like Chris mentioned, like 4,000 words on a single sporting event that like does nothing for the characters. I'm not yeah. trying to frame that as like necessarily a criticism. It's just, I am surprised at the amount of just, like, romp there is. You know what I mean? 
And I, I don't even know when some of the main plot points will come back, you know? That being said, I do love this story. Let me try to do a mental inventory of the plot threads that were, like, the, the subplots that are, like, floating out there by the time that I was in. Corwin has a crush on Utna, and those two are getting closer. Um, Devlin has some kind of mysteries, and we don't know what they are. An AI that's installed on the campus has gone rogue, and Edward from Cowboy Bebop is very interested in its development. Um, there's some sort of political things going on with Earth and monitoring telepaths or like psychics and like other other planets are very upset at Earth about this. Um, that might be about it. You might be right. Am I missing any? Uh, well, well, there's the the metal um, the power. And uh, the pillar of Sephiro and yeah, but Udna that's and, presumably I mean, like, that's, plot, but, you know. that's presumably the main um, plot, even though it doesn't feel like it all yeah, the time. Sure. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Depends on what you count, honestly, considering what's going on. Azalyn is taking it upon herself to to solve every student council member's sexual hangups one way or another. Uh, is that a subplot? That's the true main plot. <laughs> well. I would encourage y'all to keep reading more of this because every, you know, what you brought up, Amato, gets some really interesting development. Mm -hmm. That's what I love about this story. It's just, like, it's hard to emphasize. Um, sometimes I feel like 70% of this narrative is just digression into, like, romps around. And that's fine. Because, like, that's fun too but you you actually have i guess you're right there are a lot of interesting plot points and when they come up i absolutely love them i mean we haven't even gotten to the whole thing well i guess i shouldn't spoil anything but like there's a whole thing on amanda desler's planet um mm -hmm. there's like a big political thing there that comes up um there's so many things that come up and it's a great story it's just a long long narrative um mm -hmm. and a lot of the time is spent in lulls. Um, for instance, I know this is something y'all haven't gotten to either, but I will point out that similar to their arc in Toronto, there's another travel story where I feel like the whole story, except for like a couple of tiny pieces, is just, and then they went to a, the same restaurant they had went to yesterday, but this time they had a coffee instead of a beer and like blah, blah, blah. It's just like, okay. Yeah, and that's just indicative of sort of the way that this is paced and some of the problems yeah. that I have of the, yeah. with the pacing is we will eventually get around to an emotional story beat, but there will be a lot of descriptions of just going ons until we get to that story beat. And some of that's great context, but then you get so much and it's just, there's nothing it's but. so cute to read, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump around at this point into any things that we want to talk about that we haven't yet, of which there's a million. and. I'd like to start just by pointing out, um, I feel like there's some really charming tertiary characters going on in here. Like a couple of the other residents of Galaxy House are really cool. Like Gakron is is very entertaining for a character who does not matter in oh any sense. Oh my god, I He's love great. him. Um, he is... Uh, some alien, I forget his details, but mostly his thing is that he's constantly a scrang, seeking out. Right? What's that? A scrang? He's a scrang. Uh, I mean, yeah, you tell me. But he's very impassioned about very about injustices, basically. 
And like, that's what part, that's part of what makes him very endearing is that like, yes, these are things that you should be upset about, but he's like very upset, like go rant to an authority figure or a friend or whoever's on hand about like the horrible, like how horrible this injustice is that's going on and how people need to fix it like all the time. It's fun. I was wrong. Um, well, maybe I was wrong. Chakron, Siskaya is a Skrang. I don't think Chakron is. Maybe he also is. I forget. Anyway, go on. I, I think he's a Narn. Narn, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Skaya is a um, And likewise, Sky, who, which is the, the shortened form of another person who joins, like a totally new character who joins the dueling club. That's the Skrang. Yeah, okay. I, I, I like his style too. He's like a, a really fun, like kind of tertiary character to have around as far as I've read. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not just the tertiary characters. A lot of, I, I would argue, basically all of the majorly featured original characters, they have some very endearing elements to them. They're well Yeah, written. it's also true. You mentioned how Moose is eloquent in a very interesting way already. Um, I mean, like a lot of them have quite a bit of depth. I find that Caitlin's a really well-written character. So yeah. A lot of good qualities and- there. <laughs> And Aslin's really cool too, though she spends she spends more time than she would like also having to talk about her religious practices because it is such a thing yeah. on earth that like her practices involve celebratory um like enjoying enjoying each other's company, which sometimes means sex but doesn't have to. And like consent is really big, and there was like a really good scene with her and Mickey, just like where I read. Um, but like she doesn't want it to be as big a deal as it is either, but it's a big deal to everybody. So, like, it needs it gets talked about a lot. Yeah, yeah. For someone who apparently I just mentioned briefly in the description, it's like a nameless animist religion where, like, it it doesn't seem like it really has a lot of tenets to it, other than the way that they um celebrate these religious holidays and that these exist. It's a uh, you know, uh, it's a thing that comes up very frequently, given that you would feel that cultural practices would be more accepted in year 2405. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just just so weird. Like, everybody feels so uncomfortable with the fact that, like, she has a religious um, culture of consensual sex. Oh, like yeah, really controversial. Does. Consensual sex, you say? I know, I can't believe it. Like, it's consensual, it's usually casual. Like, well, not it's not casual because it has, like, actually significance to her. But what I mean is, like, it's not necessarily a monogamous bond, or even, like, it doesn't have to mean anything other than that it's part of the celebration. And I think the thing that you're thinking about, Amato, is, like, when she talks to Miki, she says, people come to these celebrations, in my village, it might have been hundreds know, of people, she says. I forget what she said, like 100 people. Yeah. But in, um, in the bigger cities, it might have been 10,000. But people come, they sing, they eat bread, you know, they drink a beverage, or they participate in the ceremony. No one is obligated to do anything other than they want to do. How controversial. I know. <laughs> but like, okay, do you love that the author presents that as a thing? Is yes. and, and yeah. well, I, they're pointing out like, as as Alin is persecuted for it. Right. It's just like you never meet another Dan Trovian or like get anybody to like support at least as far as I've gotten, get anyone to support her. And it feels like a bit sad. Um however, Miki does get to become a big support for her in this. Um, which I thought was very sweet. 
Well, you do get her friends being very accepting of it as soon as, you know, like, like he gets explained to Una and Una's yeah. like, well, I, there are I'm waiting for Anthe and that that's a thing. And you're like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. But she doesn't <laughs> like have any problem with it. <laughs> um, but I was just going to say, I think she's a really cool character that we get a lot of time with. Um, and that doesn't have to be her whole character. She's also like the person who is always, um, I, I feel like she's always the push or often the push towards friends communicating with each other, you know, directly and clearly about their needs and wants and being respectful of each other's needs and wants, which is a very helpful function to have in a, in a friend group, that sort of thing. Yeah, and um, you mentioned before the fact that this is sort of treated as something that's controversial in the same way that it would be treated as controversial controversial mm -hmm. in Earth now. And I feel like sort of the galactic politics is something they actually handle kind of well. Um, it was very briefly mentioned in the side plots that there's this whole thing going on with psychics in the world. And this gets it's only gotten briefly described, at least in the point in the story that I'm at. But it is a pretty realistic depiction of the way that I feel that this politics would go with a um, very scarily named regulatory act that is clearly intended to sound benign, but clearly is not um, in the same way that that always happens. Um, and, you know, uh, the reaction of all of these different planets' governments that are sort of loosely allied with one another in a federation to this very scary thing that uh, essentially the you know, sort of the center of the Federation is doing uh, in a way that seems real to pol political practices nowadays. Yeah, and these these planets that are, you know, presumably, like, have less weight in, you know, in the Federation, all these decisions or whatever, but they're making these, like, symbolic gestures of doing things like pulling all of their citizens, like their embassy pulling citizens, including, like, all the student visas, which just means that, like, students get caught in the crossfire and suddenly have to leave their school and that's like that that's totally so real it's like yeah, this, this yeah, has exactly. nothing to do with me on an individual level but because of the politics suddenly you know suddenly it's a huge shift in yeah. your life yeah and like even that the characters that are our point of view characters learn about this from like the administrator at the school telling moose and then moose sort of telling like at the beginning of the term when people are being pulled out um, the moose sort of telling the rest of the people about it. It's it's just sort of that's how you would experience this. That's sort of the experience, unless you were being told specifically that you should be leaving, mm -hmm. uh, how this information would sort of disseminate to you realistically. I mean, given that they don't have space Twitter, yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> Use that groups are still a thing. I would like to remind everyone. <laughs> All right, anything you two else want to talk about from the story? Points or characters? Yeah, sorry, let's sort of like sorry, train of thought. I was going to talk for so long. Um, <laughs> okay, well, look, we can move into our closing thoughts because it's, it's getting late. I'm afraid we had to start a little bit later than usual. And given that we will never address everything there is to talk about here, I feel like, to some extent, I may as well just throw my hands up and say, like, well, we, we got some of it. Fair enough. Uh, note my pages and pages of notes that are mostly, like, little things about the way that stuff was written. Um, a lot of it was very 
well written. Um, can, there were can terms I of phrase that were definitely um, like they rang an emotional chord, and I appreciated that greatly. Uh, well, let's share some of those because I want to share my favorite joke that sticks in my mind, which is not like a joke with a punchline so much. It's at one point Edward is describing something very technical involving computers and going on in like a needless detail. And Ayn, you know, barks in. And for a moment, you, the reader, think it's because Ayn is going to tell Edward, like, oh, you know, get to the point or like, you know, but it, but in fact, Ayn has added another bit of detail that Edward had forgotten about that is like way more information than anybody needs. And Edward's like, oh, thanks for reminding me, Ayn. And that made me laugh a lot. That's all. Yeah, I agree. Um, I feel like Ed is probably one of the only characters in media that I've spent more time trying to emulate than Utena. So uh, we definitely have a well-written Edward in this, and I appreciate it greatly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we completely forgot to mention that Ed Edward and I are part of this narrative. I mean, like, as are many other inserts, but a lot of them are the author creating characters in a... A, a race that they know, whereas like Ed Nine come directly from Cowboy Bebop, which is adorable. And they just sort of hang around the um, WPI campus and sleep wherever they want to sleep and like sometimes, uh, you know, hang with the crew, which is super cute. <laughs> yeah, fulfilling their role as free spirits. Anyway, any individual lines or punch lines that, uh, that you want to share off the top of your head before we go into closing thoughts? If you've got notes, Chris, you may as well put them to use. Uh, scrolling through the notes, trying to find the one that is best so that I can... Yeah, um, I know. My notes are so long that I, like, I just, like, literally can't keep track of stuff. So. <laughs> now, I'm trying to remember what I was trying to say before, but it, like... Oh, my gosh. There was this weird thing when Kay, I think, was introduced, where... I can't remember if it was Kay. It was like one of the adults during the Christmas scene. Mm -hmm. But the character says something like, ye fucking hot, dirty Harry rides again, red hair, 500 milligrams of Kilomax, and a bottle of bourbon all wrapped up in a plastic bikini. And I was like, what the hell is that? What are they referencing? Like, I really want to know, and I honestly have no idea. <laughs> like, the dirty Harry reference I get, but the rest of it, that. <laughs> I presume this has something to do with this this being I, the dirty pair character, okay? So Right. I think that was it. Yeah, I just took that to be her kind of like feeling like she's cutting loose like in her carefree youth or something. Yeah. What um, is Kilo Max though? Uh yeah. Um Unobtainium? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so Maybe. the the plot the structure or uh substance that was created okay. specifically for the purpose of service. let me just like really really clarify like nobody wears a plastic bikini it might be like pvc <laughs> that's transparent or something i mean i like to point out pvc is a type well, okay. of plastic Never mind. that okay that Florida. is actually a really good point you don't know People what don't kind of future okay. plastics you know they've invented <laughs> oh dear god I honestly don't know. That line oh, is yeah. just like out of this world to me. I just like that is like so many pieces that I don't understand. I'm just gonna oh, leave you. it. Some of the adults are lensmen. I'm like, okay, there's lensmen. Great. Oh, oh, yeah. That's technically an... oh yep. right. Yep, lots of lensmen. Technically yeah. an anime uh, also. Yes, in terms of um 
obscure sci-fi references that I was not expecting. Lensman right. was one of them. I Giant mean, Robo look, was another one. L- oh Lensman boy. is not obscure, <laughs> gi- but I was not expecting it either. Uh, you're right, you're right. It's very... Um, Giant Robo isn't really obscure either. Um, the, it's it's very notable, but it is like a bit niche, especially the further you get along in time, because it's sort of like, this is the thing that you would read because it is the origin of a lot of these tropes. <laughs> the the funniest part is the um you know the fact that like you have all of these references and Corwin lends Utna the Zelazny's Amber series saying he's named after the Corwin and Amber, yeah. right? You know, the main character. Um primary main character. Anyway, I was like Amber's not a part of this universe, it's a book in this universe. I was like, uh-huh. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Tori, I did have to take a moment there and be like, wait, okay, so what what fiction have these characters consumed that is not in fact real, and what is real? But I took a step back, just because Zelazny wrote Nine Princes in Amber does not mean that Amber is not part of this universe, because, you know, infinite shadow earths. Okay. This could just be a shadow earth in which is a fictionalized version of the actual Amberites. Yeah, you know? Oh my god. Zelazny actually was told the story by the actual Carl. Right. Yeah. That's true. It's it's turtles all the way down. Yeah. I mean, it's Corwin's all the way down. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, it is Corwin's all the way down. (laughs) I mean, mostly it's white dudes all the way down, but you know, we'll we'll give it a pass. Oh, Corwin is a white dude, and also in this, maybe so a Norse god, whatever. Um, <laughs> all right, let's bring this into closing thoughts, out of which we can probably have more digressions if need be. But we all read some amount of the first symphony of Symphony of the Sword. What? are our major complaints or things that we thought could have been done better in this fanfic. Or if not better, at least more to our tastes. Look, we've talked about this a little bit. There's just so many digressions that could be cut out. Cut out. I think, I think, I don't know, Chris, that's probably also what you're going to say. 4,000 word baseball game. Yes, <laughs> I know. Well, okay. Look, I'm going to come back to another thing I have, but, like, Chris, if you want to talk about how much you hated that baseball game, I just want to give you the platform right now. Right. There was another thing that I wanted to mention about the baseball game, because uh, there, there's some things here. Um, the reason that is given why Utna likes watching baseball, specifically watching baseball, uh, part of it has to do with the acts of heroism that it allows the people in the sport to perform, and I feel like this is that sort of, like, fake false idea of heroism that Utna would be so thoroughly opposed to and so thoroughly against by the end of the series that it is the exact antithesis of the reason why Utna would like watching a sport. Um, also mentioned is the uh, buildup of history in, in a sport due to like the immense foundation of statistics, and I would like to point out that you should not like a thing because there is a lot of numbers associated with it. There can be data collected about anything. There can be an infinite amount of data collected about anything. <laughs> it didn't bother me because I, I figure Utna just is like a casual fan of all sports. Like she plays baseball, she plays soccer, oh, yeah, she, yeah. You know, she plays soccer, she plays everything. Yeah, like if that were the like, reason, I would be less bothered. 
She plays quite a bit of basketball in the first light novel. Uh, so does Mickey yeah, for some well, reason. But uh, anyway, like her opening um, scene in the anime. That too. Um, I've got to say, if it if it's digressions we're complaining about, I would say the existence or even the length of the digressions was not necessarily a problem with me. But the weightedness in the first two main chapters was a problem because by the time I've read up through the middle of whatever it's called, sim- not Symphony Four. Uh, movement four or the movements of the main chapters um yes. yeah, yeah the fourth movement by that point i like these characters i will read about them doing yeah. most things but in the first movement the huge band trip and baseball game and being in motels and stuff and the second movement the like interminable meeting kate's family and it's just like a whole bunch of yeah okay you're a lensman yeah you're apparently like dark duck except you're a human whatever like it's too early in the story yeah. for me to deal with that shit. Like, just I way too early. He just stole his catchphrases from Darkwing Duck, which means that Darkwing Duck is also a piece of media in this universe, so... <laughs> well, yeah, Chris, there's not talking or, ducks. I mean, That's ridiculous. Those aren't real. Yeah, exactly. Howard the Duck would like to have a word with you? <laughs> oh my god. Trapped in a world he never made. Well, I, I was just gonna... Like, if I, I was just gonna give my little criticism, which is that, so it's a little hard to talk about. I'm sorry, this is like a, this is a little bit different, but this fanfic, like, to me, is like weirdly heterosexual, despite the fact that there are allusions to queerness. Like, how could there not be? Um, getting all the way through this in the sheer number of words, there are no relationships between men that, you know, are romantic. At all. Like, even with Azalyn, who, it, obviously, she's female, but, like, she has relationships, like, it's part of her religion. Sometimes it's men, sometimes it's women. It never seems to be super poly. Uh, anyway, the point is, like, we don't see another Jantrovian. We do not ever see gay relationships between men. So that's a thing. But also, there's this weird line. I don't think y'all have gotten to it yet. <laughs> but where Utina says she's a, she's heterosexual. Yeah. She's only interested in men. And Anthe is this weird exception. That's how she phrases it. And I'm it. like, yeah. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's not the worst. Like, it's not the worst thing the author could do. In fact, I would prefer if all these characters were just saying, like, they're pansexual, right? Because, like, gender shouldn't matter emotional sex should well this should matter i feel like by the end of the the series should know this well that was the main to me that's a really important part of utna is utna understanding that and so for her to say anthe is just an exception is to be it's again it's going back to the early utna who like is like a young uh gay person a queer person would have been dismissive like oh no no, no, I'm not really queer. There's just this one exception. But that's not who Una should be. She should be fully accepting. And it's not the only part of that. Like, uh, you pointed out, Chris, the, the oddness of certain elements of chivalry. Oh, yeah. And, this was in the pre-discussion. God, and I actually wrote down a lot of this stuff because it does affect me. Um, Arena, oh, you guys haven't gotten to this. Y'all haven't gotten to this part. I'm sorry. I that's will fine. not say that. Um, actually, there's a lot of stuff I can't say because I haven't gotten to it. <laughs> but I just will say that 
there is a weird emphasis on heterosexuality and on lesbian relationships being, I don't think the author does a bad job with lesbianism, but like, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to spoil anything. <laughs> yeah, you can spoil I wish it was a Tori, Tori, if something you want to talk about, it's okay. It's not like we're yeah, not um, spoiling all also, kinds of things from whoever might be listening to us or anything like that. Well, yeah, they knew what they were getting into. <laughs> That's well, we true. <laughs> but there's a whole like chapter I really love where they, um, Devlin and Amanda go back to her home planet. And there's a lot that happens. So like, actually, you know what? Instead of pointing out some of the things I was going to say, because I don't want to give too many spoilers, I will say this is a really good example of a chapter that, not even a chapter, is like part of a section because nothing is divided reasonably, of a section of the story that has incredibly well done pacing, whereas the rest of it goes in peaks and lulls. So that's also criticism, I suppose. <laughs> well, it sounds like we might be able to move on to praise from there, because after we complain about things, we talk about what we like most about the story. And I think there's a lot to like here. Um, I was kind of caught off guard by how much I was enjoying it by the time, you know, the time was up and we had to talk about it. For sure. I really loved reading this story. I don't think I would have read so much of the story if I didn't love it. Um, I will let y'all talk for a second because I think I'm just gonna, I think my best way to summarize it will be to pull up my favorite quotes. So I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> um, I guess I can leave you to that. I can mention that one thing that I thought was a really good um, metaphor in the Akio scene, it, um, which is that he, he invites them to a dinner party, which they all initially say that they don't want to go to, and then all show up to anyways in a, wonderful of no i don't want to goes and then oh so we're all going um <laughs> and then serves them all wine as like a, a sign of their like you know like conspiratorially like you this is an adult thing but i'll let you do it um and when after he explains the whole scenario to them um Jury and Mickey refuse. They drink all of the wine and place the wine glass upside down over the the rose crested signet ring that he offered to all of them. Which is like, given that this scenario does not work out for any of them, and that they end up then immediately forgetting Utena again after this, a sign that they've sort of accepted the um the context that they've been put in in this scene and sort of their polite refusal of it, and in fact their drinking of the wine being a sort of, uh, you know, uh, further acceptance of the context that Akio has, Akio has placed upon them in spite of the fact that they are refusing him at the same time. You know, uh, it worked pretty well, honestly, and I wish there were a lot more deep metaphors like that because that's what Utna is founded on. <laughs> well, that's the only scene that we had that is like in the Utna context, I mean, at least as far as we've read in the Udna context, in the Udna world, like in Otori Academy, you know? Um, and that's why it was kind of a pleasure when it came out of me, because I wasn't sure we were going to get any of that at all, actually. Um, but I did really like that scene. I liked the writing of Akio in his certain mode of just being, presenting himself as a very, you know, charismatic, nice authority figure. And like, it's, it's very sad that they don't trust him for some reason. But, you know, <laughs> it was great. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. He has this elaborate, like, like prepared with the whole projector image of Utna, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, breaking the sword of Dios and oh, like hitting Anthe and almost stabbing him. And uh, yeah. it's all muted and everything. So he's like, oh, you, you don't even want to hear what was said in the scene. It's, it's just, it's extraordinarily Akio all the time there. <laughs> Huh. Anyway, um, yeah. So, so praise. I've got to say, look, th- this is a very, very, very minor praise. I unfortunately that I want to start with. I did. I didn't notice. Like it, it's copy edited to perfection. Like I didn't notice a single distracting, like you know, comma out of place. Like you know, a, a single misspelled word. Nothing like that. It reads so smooth, and the writing itself reads very smoothly too. Uh, I very rarely had to, like, skip ahead or anything. And the reading of it is so smooth, and the character voices are so consistent that no matter what is happening, no matter what is happening in the story, whether it's, like, plot or whether it's uh, college kids who are technically high school kids hanging out, it's very pleasant to read. And I've got to say, in a way that is unusual in the many, many, many fanfics that I've read, just for it to be kind of like such a pleasant read. I feel like there's a deeper way that I could be describing this, and I'm not sure what it is, but it reads good. Good words, like book. Uh, yeah. No, I describe, I describe it as wholesome. Um, just the sort of story that despite there's actually like big overarching things happening, they're happening very slowly in terms of the narrative pacing. But a large thing that is happening is the kids are forming a band and they're traveling and they're touring and they're gaining a reputation. And when the author does the reading, there's those audio clips of songs that punctuate it. You get a full like sensory experience of these kids just having fun and living good lives. And I will say for the third time, I think that is what you want for Udina, who's gone through so much trauma. And you want for Kate, now that you know her story of trauma. Um, it's a very sweet story. I also want to repeat that if the author is going anywhere, like I think where he's going with the Sephiro Otori thing, it's just a very, very clever crossover at the center of this whole thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. It's. Um... I kind of want the physics of Utena's universe to assert themselves a little bit more, but I do like the conceit that this is Sephiro and it functions on Sephiro logic um, to some extent. The physics of the world function on Sephiro logic to some extent. Um, and yeah, you were, you're right about Utena getting a giant robot. I don't want that to happen <laughs> really badly right now. <laughs> The only other Sephiro comment I have is that I feel like at one point, one character, in reference to the aliens on Earth, say like, oh, we've never encountered like people from like other worlds, you know, back where I come from. And I was like, oh, just you wait. You're going to be like invaded three times over at some point. It's coming. That's all. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like my praise has actually been relatively summarized in the course of this, but just wanted to add an extra note. Did y'all get to the point where Una 
throws things in the deep fryer with Sanji. No. Oh my god. That's amazing. That's all I'm gonna say is it's like literally the best scene I've ever read in my entire life. Udna and Sanji throw things into a deep fryer, like as a science experiment. And also because Sanji like works in the, you know, uh ghoul's uh cafeteria. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, of course he does. I will leave it at that. <laughs> this story is so freaking fun. Um, and also so poignant sometimes. And I really do delight in it, despite it being way, way longer than it needs to be. I still kind of love it. And, and story. I, I just want to praise the Utena deep cuts. Things like Saunji being a functional cook. Like, I mean, I guess he can cook eggs is all we know from, you know, canon. Right, and things like Sanji being a functional human. Well, yeah, that's the thing that we uh, sort of brushed over in this, is that Sanji shows up being very axe-crazy, uh, as you <laughs> sort of expect Sanji from the beginning of the series to be. Um, and then we realize that he's had his memories manipulated in certain ways, which is why he does that. And he sort of recovers to the way that he was at the end of the series. And you're like, yeah, okay, all of this writing makes sense for the Sanji at the various points in the story. He acts like he would at those various points in the story. Um, and for my final Utena deep cut commentary, though, if the author got the plot point, not plot point, if the author got the character point that Jury is good at fighting games from playing or seeing screenshots of the Utena Sega Saturn game in the year of our Lord 2001, then I'm very impressed. Like, that is some dedication. It was like a shrine with screenshots online, unless you had like a Japanese Saturn and a copy of the game. That, those were like your options for knowledge of anything going on in that game. But yes, Jury is good at Street Fighter. And she is in this fanfic as well. That's some real good obscure uh, knowledge. But I mean, I would sort of expect that of this. There are a lot of obscure bits of knowledge that worked their way into, into here. All right. Well, I think we're about tapped out of obscure bits of knowledge right now about a fan fiction. I think we got to wrap this up. It's getting real late. And so thanks so much for doing so much reading, so much more note-taking than I did, both of you. Sorry, I did not convey clearly what we were getting into because I did not know. And sorry, we didn't get, even get to the end of the first symphony, Riffin. I kind of intended for us to, but that did not happen. Maybe if you had shorter symphonies. How about just a... What's a short piece of music? Well, okay, but to be fair, a symphony is usually not, like, 20 hours long. Just saying. <laughs> Metaphorically. <laughs> I don't know. So you'd, you'd have to ask Griffin about that. That's right. No problem. I'm sorry I didn't get... I'm sorry I didn't get through all of it, first of all. I probably should have circumstances like I said three days. Um, yeah, I expect day. reading old fan fiction to be your top priority in life, Chris. Whenever <laughs> oh, I yeah. have you on here, like you should drop anything else that's going on. Yeah, I will tell my medical conditions to stop affecting my life just so that I can read fan fiction. That sounds good. Solid plan. I feel like you should have another motivation <laughs> for that, but you know, that's how you feel. <laughs> Look, if they listen, I really don't care what the motivation is. <laughs> All right, then. This was episode 130 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the first part of the first symphony of Symphony of the Sword, mostly by Griffin, a.k.a. Benjamin Hutchins, or Benjamin Hutchins, a.k.a. Griffin. Take your pick. 
Um, would one of you like to attempt the actual German title of this symphony? Because I don't really feel competent to. No. Thus. The Song of the Earth in German. Um, it is... I will try. Das Lied von der Erde. And I'm sorry to all of the German-speaking listeners of this podcast. All the many. Okay, well, that sounded solid enough. Das, das Lied. Wait. Lied. Lied? Das okay. Lied? I don't know. I said I'm no. Sorry, German. You know what? I'm sorry, Germans. You can find the fanfic still on the Undocumented Features website, which is still being hosted and still being occasionally added to, is my understanding. We will provide a link with the show notes. Do not forget to click on those little tiny audio symbol, you know, links next to each of the parts uh, if you want access to what future generations would call podfic, the audio recording versions of the stories. The intro song to the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. But now I'm thinking that maybe we should all just take up an instrument and, you know, jam and form a, a cool band like we were cool teens and play Sounds some, good. like, you know, hundreds of years old classic rock in addition to some newer songs as right. well <laughs> particularly journey right particularly don't stop leaving <laughs> i was in a band in high school um i did not play any journey or mm. any of hundreds year old classic rock but you know. i have a tough time finding that unless we're time traveling during mm. your school years i do i don't remember but you know i wouldn't put it past the universe <laughs> to erase my memory around that anyway Anyway, you can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us on Twitter at Retrofanfic, Facebook at Retrofanfic, send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. Those are all good. You can leave comments or reviews on the podcast app that you are very likely using to listen to this podcast as well, and that would be greatly appreciated also. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. No, I'm Chris. We're just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other and hone our skills with the blade. Until next time, take care. Where's that rose, Amato? I'm gonna knock it.